Okay, well, it looks like it's about that time, so let's go ahead and uh, uh, come together here, and we'll go ahead and start for the evening. Uh, if I could ask Ron, could you open us in prayer tonight? Sure. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity of gathering together to open your word and to look into it. We pray that uh, you'd be with Mark as he teaches tonight, give him words of, of wisdom and help us to understand the things that are being taught. Pray, Lord, that uh, we might use these things in our lives to further your gospel here on this earth. We thank you for this time. Pray that you bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Ron. And thanks for calling me Mark, by the way, just just to clear the air. That's what I want to be called. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I appreciate that. So uh, that clears the air for us. So. Okay. How are you? Good. We talk are about particular redemption? Uh, not tonight. <laughs> okay, we are on page seven of your notes, page seven, and we are defining here as closely as we can what dispensationalism is. And what we have here is what I call the irreducible minimum. Uh, without these things, uh, you don't have the dispensational system. Okay, we've gone over the history of it last time. Hopefully that was at least somewhat interesting to you. Uh, now we're going to see what, what exactly makes a dispensationalist tick. Well, I, start, I started off by saying here that Charles Ryrie, many years ago, said there's really basically three pieces of what it means to be a dispensationalist. Uh, he said, first of all, there's a distinction between Israel and the church. Israel and the church are not the same thing. There is also a consistent, what he calls a consistent literal hermeneutic. That is a, a literal way of reading the Bible. This is probably the one that needs the most explanation. And then also then the underlying, what he calls a doxological purpose of God in the world. What he means by that is that what God is doing in his universe is more than just saving people. Uh, that there, is, there, there are multiple ways whereby God is bringing glory to himself, one of which is the saving of souls, uh, but not the only uh, means whereby he is uh, bringing glory to himself. Okay, Now, we can tease this out just a little bit here, and uh, hopefully this doesn't get too weighty here, uh, but uh, uh, some, of those, some, of those, some of those statements here that Charles Ryrie makes are a little bit clipped, a little bit cryptic. He's trying to make it as simple as possible, and in making it as simple as possible may have actually narrowed it down so much that it's actually a little bit hard to uh, to capture some of what he's saying. So uh, there have been others who have come up, come along afterwards, Charles, uh, excuse me, John Feinberg and Mike Vlock, both of them have pretty much the same list of six items here, and hopefully this can sort of uh, tease out a little bit more about what Charles Ryrie is saying. First of all here is this idea, first of all, that the terms Israel, seed, and Abraham have multiple meanings in Scripture, and they cannot be confused with one another. They can't swallow each other up. Like, for instance, if I can, if I can uh, take you to uh, Romans 9, 6, perhaps one of the uh, most obvious of these here, um, it makes, there's a statement made here that almost seems an, an impossible statement. Paul makes the statement that not all Israel is Israel. Well, we look at that and say, okay, I, 
A is not not A. Well, I, I, I mean, A is not A. I don't get it. It's, it. That doesn't seem possible. But what is what what is meant here is that not everyone who is an ethnic Jew is a believing Jew. Okay, and so you've got the same and you've got the same thing here with the seed of Abraham. Seed of Abraham. As you go through the Book of Genesis, there's promises made to Abraham to the children of Abraham. In fact, the, the details are such that you know it's got to be physical children. In fact, the, uh, the first conversation that's had after God promises Abraham, you're going to have a son. What's his first statement? Anybody? I'm too old. I can't have a son. And my servant is going to inherit my estate. And so what does God reply? No, no, no. You're actually going to have one of your kids from your loins. That's what I mean by the seed of Abraham. You're one of your children, one of your physical children. But then later, when we come into Galatians, we actually find in uh, Galatians uh, chapter 3 that we are in some sense, all of us who are believers, children of a- Abraham according to faith. Okay. Well, we're not children of Abraham in a physical sense, and the promise is that there's going to be ch- physical children of Israel, but there is also a sense in which we are children of Abraham in another, in, in, in another way, and the, and the specification is according to faith. And we can't, and what I mean by we can't, one cannot swallow up the other is this. If God made a promise about physical descendants, it can't be fulfilled by spiritual or descendants by faith, okay? Because they're different things, okay? Same thing with Israel. So that's, that's first of all. That's perhaps one of the most complicated of the six. I wish they didn't start with that one. Uh, perhaps I should have moved it to the, to the end, uh, but they started with it, so I did too. Next one, I think, will be a little bit clearer. Secondly here, then. There's a belief that the Old Testament covenant promises to Israel will be filled, fulfilled for future national Israel. Okay. So there's a promise here that there's going to be a seed as numerous as the sky stars of the sky and the sand of the earth, and there's going to be a land. In fact, if you look at the book of Numbers, the, 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 the dimensions of the land are given in painstaking detail. You know, you know, go so many, uh, so, so long along this, this ridge and then turn left and then you come to this city and then you turn right and then you, and finally you get to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, cut across to Mount Hermon, go down, the, it, 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 it takes about eight verses to explain the parameters and perimeters of the land. Okay. And the promise is, you're going to get that land. Furthermore, you're going to have it forever. I mean, that, that, that word is very important. Forever. Because, yeah, there may have been times, various points in the history of Israel, where they actually had all the land as described, but they didn't have it forever. Because they don't have it now. Okay, so they didn't have it forever. So whatever that, that means is they're going to have it in a permanent way. And they don't have it. And so this is, this is a promise that's going to be fulfilled for Israel itself, because that's what the promise says. So the covenants in their self-evidently literal terms haven't been fulfilled for historical Israel, and so there must be then a future for this national Israel. 
Okay, so, uh, and, that's, that's, and that's our next point. And not just a future for national Israel, but I actually added a, an adjective there, a prominent future for national Israel. Uh, because it's not just that the Jewish identity is going to manage to survive until the end of the age, but actually they are going to be rewarded this land, these promises, uh, the, the privileges that have, that have been promised in long past, and they are going to actually be the centerpiece of this kingdom in the future. Okay? Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the kingdom. Christ is going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and the Israelites will function as priests for the nations. The nations will stream to her light, uh, and uh, they will they will fun- function as priests uh, for the nations. And so, there's going to be a, prom- uh, a, a there's a promise here of a prominent future for national Israel. So there's a Jewish flavor to the millennium, uh, which is remember we talked about the various types a couple of weeks ago. Here, uh, there are some pre-millennialists who say we don't like the dispensational thing and here's where it shows up. There's going to be a, a millennium in the future but it really doesn't have anything special for Israel. Okay? It's, it's the church that is at the center because for them, uh, church and Israel are largely the same. Okay? Does that make sense? Anytime along the way, interrupt and say whoa, whoa, I don't get this. Okay? Next here, number four. There's an approach to hermeneutics, and again, that's a, that's a big word. We've used it a few times here. Maybe you're getting used, accustomed to it. Simply, that it simply means a way of reading the Bible, you know, studying your Bible, a, a, a way of interpreting literature that demands the Old Testament be taken on its own terms and not reinterpreted. This is what Ryrie means by a consistent literal hermeneutic. Okay? And so when uh, there, there are promises here, for instance, of a millennium in which there is going to be abundant crops and there's going to be rivers that cut through the nation of Israel. And you, if you ever visited a place, you say, where, where is this river? There's, there's, there's no water. There's, 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 there's scarcely confined water in Israel. Even the Jordan River, which uh, we, we you know, figure so prominently in the uh, Old Testament. If you go there today, uh, by the time you get to the southern part, all, the, the entire river is gone. It's, it's all funneled away for irrigation. There's just nothing left, which is why the Dead Sea is dying even further, because there's no, there's no new water coming into it. Uh, so uh, so this, this, uh, there's this promise of water. There's going to be rain. There's going to be crops. Uh, there's going to be uh, sheep lying down with wolves. And you say, well, that seems rather fantastic because that doesn't normally happen in my experience. Uh, not that I know too many sheep or wolves, but I, I can't imagine them lying down together in in our present day and age. But those are the promises, and those are, and I, I understand those to be uh, actually fulfilled uh, in a coming day. Okay. I say here, number five here. There's a belief in the church as a distinctive organism. Okay. So dispensationalists believe that the church did not exist at one point and that it sprang into existence at some point during the New Testament. We'll talk a little bit later about some of the options of when it exactly started. Most will point to the day of Pentecost, although there's, there's, there's a little bit of variation uh, even among dispensationalists when exactly it starts. That's where I would put it, at the, at the day of Pentecost. 
Okay, this is a result of a new administration. Remember, that's what we've talked about. A dispensation is a new administration, a new way that God is operating with his with his with his chosen people. Okay. And then finally, there's this philosophy of history that exceeds salvation and embraces the whole of human existence. I say material and immaterial. Uh, covenant theology, if you're familiar with it, operates on the principle uh, that governing all of human history is a single covenant uh, with God and man that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and we are its beneficiaries. And it's and it's it's pretty much you talk about you 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 look at the history of the scriptures and a reformed theologian is going to call this what the history of redemption. Okay, that's 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 the whole story here is a story of how uh, how God chose a group of people they fell they uh, floundered around for a while God sent His Son to to offer a solution to the problem many of them got saved and. And uh, it all ends a little bit more happily than it started. Okay, but there's more going on, I think, in what's in, in what the scriptures are doing. Because, you, you, in fact, we'll talk a little bit even tonight about the Old Testament. You read through it. Uh, I don't know where you know if any of you are doing you know scripture reading uh, this uh, year, and you're probably in Leviticus or Numbers right now. If you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, and this is where you usually you you end, you stop, right? <laughs> <laughs> because you, you know you're reading about you know if, if you know if you have a cut on your hand and it's a scab it's okay but if it's issuing blood it's not okay and if it's running down your finger it's okay again it's it's like and there's like 80 verses in a row with just every ever so slight a variation and you read this and it's like really <laughs> how how is this going to help me and you realize that more is going on than details about how people get saved if I if I can put it that way. The, and uh, you know, and, and you, you take a look, for instance, at the at the story of the angels. Well, the angels aren't don't get saved. In fact, Hebrews says Christ doesn't save angels. He didn't become an angel. He can't save angels. And so, angels have some sort of a function, but it's not redemptive. God's not going to save the, the the angels. So something's going on there. I, we 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 can talk about the land uh, and. Uh, the land become, ends up becoming something of an unimportant thing, the, this physical land uh, to many covenant theologians. But it's very important in the, in the, in, as you work through it. Why is the land so important? Because there's something going on here, even in the material uh, and, and, and geological structures that's bringing glory to God, I, I, I think even irrespective of redemption. So there's something more going on than just God saving people. So that, that all comes together to sort of give us a picture of, of what a dispensationalist is. They look at the scriptures and say, I read it for what it says. I assume it means what it appears to mean. It doesn't change meanings as I work through the, through, 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 through the scriptures. I understand that there are two different people groups uh, that are being described. One is Israel, another is the church, and there may even be some lesser groups here and there, but those are probably the two prominent ones. Okay, And finally, something bigger going on than God saving people. So those, those three things sort of come together, and hopefully those details uh, you know, sort of fill in some of the gaps uh, that you might have had. Thought, thoughts on that? Questions on that? Next, let's define 
what a dispensation is. And we've sort of given some tentative definitions along the way here. Uh, but I think we can find some of these things uh, in the scripture to sort of give us a, a, a reason for why we're using this term. It's not just a term we've just sort of, you know, sucked out of our thumbs here. Uh, these are, these are, this is actually a term that appears in scripture. It is, it is used multiple times in the way that we're using it in this class. And you say, really? I, I just don't remember seeing it. Okay, well, let's see if we can point it out to you here. Okay, biblical usage, first of all. I don't get too much Greek going here, but it's a, it's a Greek word. And the reason I bring it up is because it's actually a Greek word that sounds like an English word that's a lot like it. So I'm just going to bring it up here. Uh, the word here is oikonomia, okay? uh, which is actually two words, house and law. Okay? So it's the law of the house. And the idea here is, I don't know if any of you are Downton Abbey fans, uh, but uh, you know, there's, there's a house and... He, and, the, and the guy in charge, you know, lays down the law, and the servants are the ones who carry out the law. Okay, that's really the idea that's there. Uh, so, uh, and and what what they have here is an administration. This is an administrated manor uh, or or estate here in England, and you know, you, you probably, I, I don't watch it actually, so I don't, I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but some of you do, and so you know what this estate is and the administration of it. Okay, by the servants. Okay, this term actually appears 20 times in the Greek New Testament, variously translated as a manager or a management, a steward and a stewardship, or an administrator and an administration, depending on what translation you have. Okay, the most complete description of this idea is found in Luke. There's actually two stories uh, that we find in the uh, book of Luke. All of both of which involve a steward. Uh, Luke twelve forty two to forty nine is one of these. Who then is a faithful and wise manager? My translation has here. So this manager, the master puts this manager in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. However, if the servant says to himself, this steward, this manager, says to him, my master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of the house will basically not be happy when he comes back. Okay? And, it's, and, and, and it's illustrative of the present age. Right, the master is gone. Uh, in fact, in Luke 19, the other account that's very similar to it, he's gone off to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Okay, and uh, and it's actually that's that's really an interesting uh, parable there because it actually mirrors exactly what's going on in, in the present day. Uh, uh, the uh, Herod Archelaus uh, had just assumed the kingship. Of, of, uh, of, of Judea. And uh, it was during the Roman Empire, right? So you don't just assume the kingdom just because your dad had it. Uh, you have to get it from the emperor. And so he went to Augustus. He made the journey from Judea all the way around to Rome, 
met with Augustus and received from him a kingdom, and then he returned. And there was a cohort of Jews that said, we do not want this man to rule over us. Okay, so the whole story is exactly as it appears. And, and Christ says the same thing is going to happen again. And what is the context here? He's about to, he's coming into Jerusalem, he's about to arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, this, is, this is the event where they have the triumphal entry. And he senses that the people think the kingdom's going to start right away. And so he tells them a parable. Someone went into a far country to receive a kingdom. Basically what he's saying, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to go to heaven, and there from my father I'm going to receive my kingdom, and then I'm going to return. Okay? And then he says, I've got ten of you here who are stewards. I'm going to give you all some money. Do business. Invest this money until I come back. Okay? And so it's a stewardship that they have. They are managing his affairs, managing his estate, and that's what our job is. We are stewards. We are managers. We are dispensers of the grace of God, in a sense, in what we are, in what we are doing in our function uh, for the church. We're stewards. Okay? We're oikonomia. We're, we're, <laughs> I didn't say it right. We're, we're oikonomias. Okay? We are stewards. Uh, in within this, within this stewardship that is the church, okay. So in both of these passages here, two parties: a king, a manager. The king tells the manager what to do, holds the manager accountable for what he's supposed to do, and then at the end, there's some sort of a judgment, okay. And that's exactly what God is doing within the present administration. Romans sixteen twenty three actually is another example of the use of this word. Erastus is called the city oikonomos. Okay. Sometimes it's translated the city treasurer, if you have an ESV. Uh, the NIV calls it the director of public works. It's a little bit uh, uh, inventive, perhaps. Uh, but it's, a, but it's a, you know, probably a helpful descriptive term. It's likely that he is what is known uh, within, uh, uh, within the uh, literature as an edil. It was sort of a middle... It was a middle governmental position where he was in charge of the buildings and streets of Corinth, uh, oversaw public festivals and games. Okay, and so he was not himself a ruler, but he did the bidding of the ruler. Okay, so he's the one who administrated the city of Corinth. All believers are described in 1 Corinthians 4 1 and 2. As stewards, remember, moreover, required in stewards or managers, uh, that a man be found faithful. And, by the way, that's what you are. Okay? You're stewards, you're managers. Okay? And this is the same term that we've been using. The pastor in Titus 1 is called the oikonomos of his church. He is the steward, the manager of the church on behalf of the chief shepherd. Jesus Christ. Paul, and here we're getting into something that's a little bit closer to here uh, to the way we use it, is Ephesians 3, where he calls himself an oikonomos of the gospel and of truth about the church. Okay, and in Ephesians 3, he says, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. Okay, 
He describes himself in this way, and, and then he goes on to explain himself. I am a steward of an administration of the people of God. Okay? And he says this is something that has not previously been known. It's not previously been experienced. And then he goes on to describe it. What is this new administration? Well, it's Jews and Gentiles together in one body. Okay? This is, this is, this is something that, that's unprecedented. Up till this point, it's been Israel. In fact, much of what we read about these laws, about purity and such, are designed to say Israel is Israel, the Gentiles are Gentiles, and don't mix. You mix, it becomes a problem. Now, we find that Paul says, I'm a steward of a new stewardship, a dispenser of new revelation, new information about an organism you've never heard of. It is, a, it, is a, it is something, an organism called the church, in which Jews and Gentiles are on absolutely equal footing. Circumcision means nothing. Uncircumcision means nothing. Jew, Gentile, bond-free, male, female, all of those distinctions, you know, even, even in, in the Old Testament, men could get further into the temple than the women could, right? The, uh, the men had greater privileges. Like it or not, that's just the way it was. Okay? Men had greater privileges than the women. Not anymore. Men and women together are equal in status within the church. Of course, there are still some distinctions as far as leadership go. But as far as status, uh, there, there's equality. Okay? So specifically here, Ephesians 3, 9 and following, he describes here his responsibility of making known the, the stewardship of the mystery of this, uh, of this event. He also describes another administration other than these. So there's an assumption here that there was an old administration, Israel. There's a new administration, the church. And then he says... There's going to be another one as well. This is in chapter 1. He says here, there is going to be a stewardship called the stewardship of the fullness of times. Ephesians 1.10 describes it this way. So another phase of God's eternal purpose. There was a phase of Israel. There's a phase in which the church is prominent. And then there is another phase which is called the phase of the fullness of time, the administration of the fullness of time. So you're starting to see here some of these administrations unfold. Okay? The implication here in, in Colossians 1 is that there was actually one uh, that preceded Israel, too. Uh, before, you know, Israel, Israel doesn't exist as a nation per se, as a political unit with, with a set of laws until we get to the middle of Exodus. And so there's, a, there's sort of an assumption here that there was something else before that. Now, it's not, it's not described here in the New Testament in detail. We'll, we'll try and see if we can't tease out some of the details of that. Uh, but uh, I, I think we can at least say that Paul sees a minimum of four administrations. We're going to actually break up that beginning part into a couple of extras here. But for now, there is the fullness of times, millennium, the church, now, Israel, 
and something before Israel. Okay, so we'll, we'll leave it at four for now. I think that's what Paul at least gives us, um, but I think we have reason to think that that earliest one can be broken up a little bit further yet. Okay? So that's biblical usage of this term, and that's where we get this term dispensation. Uh, now, I, I have some, uh, something here about modern usage, too, because it actually is, is helpful here. The Greek term, oikonomia, like I say, I don't normally give too many Greek terms, but it has migrated almost without change into the English language, and I sort of give you how that happened, to the word economy. Okay, Oikonomia becomes economy. Now, that term today really has almost exclusively to do with money, okay? But that's not exactly how that term originally meant. What it meant here was the administration of financial affairs, okay? okay. Now, now, like I say, we talk about the economy day and all we're thinking about stocks and bonds and, and what the price of gold and such are. Uh, but really what we're talking about here is the administration of financial affairs. And in fact, the, when you use the word economy, you're using the word dispensation, same term. In fact, it's almost exactly like the Greek term. Okay. Now, the English term, where does the English term come from? Well, it actually comes from the Latin, dispensatio, which is used in the Latin translation of the, uh, of the, uh, of the Bible, the often thought of as the Catholic Bible here, uh, where it's a dispensing of the grace of God, an administration of the grace of God, a dispensing, hence the word dispensation. So that's where the term comes from. It's a biblical term, uh, even though you might say, I don't see that word dispensation per se in my English translation. It's, it's lurking there under the surfaces, okay, in these, in these terms that we've used here. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. So then, what do we have to have in order to identify one of these Dispensations. I've said there's at least four, maybe more. So what are the pieces that we have to have to know we've migrated from dispensation A to dispensation B? Okay. Let me see if I can put this down. There's three elements here, I think, that we can see. First of all, there has to be some sort of new administrative structures. Okay. Now, we're going to insist that there is one divine plan one theme that ties the entirety of the scriptures together. But the outworking of that plan is not singular. Okay? So we shouldn't think of God as you know, flitting from one plan to plan B to plan C to plan D because each one is failing as he goes. At the same time, we can think in terms of God making changes within, within his administration without threatening his 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 uh, his his changelessness or his his immutability. Way of salvation doesn't change. It's always by grace through faith in God's promises and the accomplishment of atonement. Uh, but other features of God's administrative plan do change. We change. We see changes in political structures. We see changes in civic mandates, sociological mandates. There are things that you're supposed to do with orphans and widows and children and sick people in the Old Testament that really go unaddressed in the New. And some of the things, for instance, that go on within the, within the religious community actually come in the, uh, in the New Testament be, to be part of the state community. 
and that's one of the one of the uh, thorny problems here is that in Israel you actually have the state, the civic structures, and the religious structures all merge together and, and, and sort of mingle together. In the New Testament, they're extracted from one another, and that's that that creates complexities uh, for us, and we 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 have to sort of figure out what is the function of the state and what is the function of the church and they're, and they're and they're not the same you can't just think in one globular term like we used to you know and, you know perhaps one of the things that would come up would be would be tithing okay or giving in the old testament all the money went into one pot and it was distributed for civic structures if necessary raising an army feeding the feeding the poor also funding the temple. All of it went to one pot, and it was distributed. Now, what does Jesus say? Well, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. Well, that completely blew up the whole way it was op operated in the Old Testament. It's completely different now. We still have to give. We have to give to two different entities, and this whole idea of tithing may actually get sort of blown up because the tithing was tied to, the, tied to this system. And so, uh, that in fact, there is a new a new order uh, for for giving in the New Testament. Okay, so there's changes that go on. So there's new administrative elements here. Some of these changes are very broad. Like when we go from law to church, that's where we see the biggest changes. Perhaps sometimes uh, the the changes are only minimal. Yes, ma'am. Um, so what do they do with, like when the state was doing opposite what the church was? Um, were they still supposed to pay their tithes to the state? In in Old Testament or New Testament, which which uh, okay, I, I I thought you I, I didn't know if you were distinguishing between the two. Well, in in well, there in the Old Testament there are specific instructions to uh, for when God's king was in charge and when they were in exile. Okay, so so they were they were to give their funds to the to the to the the king of Israel and to the and to the structures that were there, irrespective of whether the king was a good king or a bad king, whether the priests were doing what they were supposed to do or weren't doing what they were supposed to do, that was just that was done. And then when they went into exile, there were these there were these statements made. You're supposed to seek the good of the city, because those are while in exile, in order uh, to you know, basically earn the favor necessary to returning to the land. Um, New Testament, though, you know, in, in fact, that's part of the, that's part of the tension here, because we we've got a situation where Israel's in her land, but she doesn't have her own king. She's she's beholden to to Rome to basically run things, and so this is this is when the Pharisees came up and said, "Are we supposed to pay taxes?" And this is where Jesus gives this famous statement here, right? And he says, "Okay." I give you a new order. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And I think effectively, he's saying we're, we're, we're effectively moving into a new order where those things are, are, are going to be separated. Okay. And, as, as you, as you, and as you look through uh, the New Testament, there, there are statements here, pay your taxes and give your offerings to Christ, to the church, lay up money in storehouses. So you're supposed to lay up money in storehouses for the church and pay your taxes to the government. And so that these things become difficult. Okay. 
Old Testament, the tithe, there wasn't a monetary value uh, imposed. Uh, it was basically uh, food, uh, 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 crops that were given to support the, the high priest, and then the high priest, they were the government back before Rome uh, took over, and the only the only coinage we had, I, I believe I've heard, is it's a half shekel, which went for the, the temple tax. Is that correct? Or no? Well, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a monolithic answer to that, because there, it was an agrarian culture, so a lot of it was produce and, and property. But there, but there were also, as you know, there, there was a that, that wasn't uniform. So sometimes there were merchants who actually were dealing with with, with gold and with, with with other commodities too. So it was it was it was it was it was detailed in a tenth of your of your income, whatever that might be. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily detailed detail specific there because it, it may be different for different people. I see. Yeah, I, I was sure that that the tithe was just to support and keep alive the high priests and, and the, the, the families and all that there were. Actually, there were three tithes that were given. One was for the temple. Uh, one was for basically, if I can say, civic structures. And then a third tithe, and there's some debate about this one, was, was for the poor. Um, it, it was given every third year, so um, there's some... It's, it, it looks like it was 20%, 20%, 30%, 20%, 20%, 30%. So on average, they gave 23% of their income for the combined functions of church and state, or religious and civic structures. Um, I don't know that those numbers necessarily mean anything, but it, but it perhaps gives us an idea of what it should take to fund those kinds of structures. Okay, so we have new administrative structures, new revelation, secondly. Uh, not only do we have new structures, but God tells us this, you have to do new things, okay? New revelation from God. So in order to effect these administrative changes, God always gives to man new revelation. Sometimes it's very extensive, uh, covering books and books and books of the Bible. Sometimes the revelation is very localized and minimal, I think of, for instance, the dispensation of promise. It's effectively a conversation that God has with Abraham. Repeats again, and then repeats again with Isaac and Jacob. And that's basically the sum total of the new revelation. Now, it, it, it does get disseminated in, in various, in various uh, uh, events, uh, but that's basically the, the whole of it. Uh, since the revelation was never immediately accessible to everyone, except maybe at the beginning when Adam got all the information or with Noah, when Noah got off the, all the information. It didn't come to everybody immediately, so there usually were some, was some sort of a, a transition period uh, until you could get all the, in, all the data uh, transmitted to the people who needed to know it. Okay? Uh, but for the most, but, but once those changes were established, uh, they were obliged to implement them. Okay, and we have examples, for instance, in Matthew 18 of, 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 of folks uh, who were in the, the northern uh, parts of, up, up, up towards uh, Turkey and had not heard that Jesus had died. They're still, they're still preaching the, the baptism, baptism of 
John the Baptist faithfully. And they're trying to do exactly what they were supposed to do. They took this information from John the Baptist. They're telling people that 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 the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, and, and Paul's like, Haven't you heard? He's come and gone. <laughs> you need to change your message. And so they 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 get something of a pass, but of course, immediately they had to change their message. Once they once they were apprised of the new data, uh, they had to uh, change their 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 uh, um, their message to the people to whom they're giving it, and then new responsibilities. So, along with the new revelation, along with the new administration, are you have to do new things? Okay. Now, some of the things don't change. Uh, there, there's no new ways to get saved, although perhaps there is an increase in the amount of information about how to get saved. I mean, you know, at, at the beginning, it's just there's going to be a seed, and the seed's going to solve your problems. That's, that's about some total of what they knew. Uh, by the time we get into the present day, we have, you know, a, a detailed explanation about how Christ. Uh, virgin-born Christ lives a perfect life, life dies a perfect death uh, on behalf of sinners, uh, uh, is, is buried, rises again, third day ascends, and you have to, and you have to, you have to embrace all of that as true uh, in order to uh, in order to be saved. But ultimately, the mechanism is the same. I believe in the revelation about how I am to be saved that God has given me. He might have only given them, the first guys, a little bit of information. He gives us a little bit more information. But salvation is the same. Salvation is by faith, uh, by, by grace, uh, through faith, and the revel, uh, revelation that God has given uh, relative to his saving of, 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 of his people. Okay? But there are other, there are a lot of differences sometimes. In, it changes in how people express their faith. Okay? In the Old Testament, how did people express their faith? Well, some basic things is there was a circumcision, and they had regular sacrifices. Well, in the New Testament, we don't have those things. Circumcision doesn't mean anything, and sacrifice, the fact sacrificial system has been done away with. But we do have new ways whereby we live out and express our faith, including baptism, for instance, participation in the church and its ordinances, etc. Okay, so there are changes in the way we live out our faith, not changes in how we get saved, but changes in, in, in how a believer expresses his faith uh, within that dispensation. Okay? And then we, we actually find a lot of changes in, uh, that go on. Some of them are political, some of them civil, some of them sociological. There's all kinds of changes that occur uh, from dispensation to dispensation. So this is what is necessary in order to define uh, the dispensations that we have. We're going to, not tonight, uh, but we're going to talk about seven of these. Now, seven's not a magic number. Uh, don't imagine that. Uh, some actually would say there's eight, some would say there's six, and the number is really not important. Um, uh, but, I, but, but the idea of dispensations, I think, yes. Okay. And so we have some definitions here uh, uh, that, that, that I have. Schofield, a period of time during which man is tested with respect to obedience to some new specific revelation of the will of God. Lewis Berry Chafer, a period which is identified by its relation to some particular purpose of God. Ryrie, perhaps the 
the, the biggest words and hardest perhaps to follow, but perhaps the most precise, actually. A distinguishable economy, a distinguishable administration in the outworking of God's purpose, or a divinely established stewardship of a particular bit of revelation of God's mind and will, which brings added responsibility to the whole race of men or a portion of that race to whom the revelation has been particularly given by God. Mason's is perhaps the most understandable and complete of those definitions. Uh, Clarence Mason, uh, an early dispensationalist. Okay? Thoughts? Come up for air? Yes. So then today, what is the role of the church in regards to government? If we see the government going astray off off-center to, to what Scripture says, what is our responsibility to say or not to say or sit there or charge ahead or what? Can I crunch the Yeah, a fabulous question. Because if you're reading the Old Testament, you might say, you know, this seems to suggest I do this, and but then I read the New Testament and so, which, which do I follow? What do I do? Uh, how do I know what I'm supposed to follow explicitly? How, how do I know what's sort of giving me some sort of general principles? And uh, we'll, we'll talk through, we'll walk through some of those, especially when we talk about uh, the outworking of the specific uh, dispensations, which will probably be next week or the following. Very good question, though. Good, good question that says you're tracking and anticipating. So I, that's a, I like questions like that. Okay, even though I didn't give you an answer. Okay. Uh, another point here, top of 12. We'll probably finish with this because there's a sort of a big section that I start at the bottom of 13 that uh, we'll, we'll cut out before we get there. And that is this idea of progressive revelation and how the dispensations relate to one another. And again, we've sort of been talking about this as we, as we work through, uh, as we've been working through it. Okay, um, some dispensationalists, particularly historic dispensationalists, have, have almost over dispensationalized or hyper dispensationalized <laughs> the Bible, basically <laughs> dividing up the Bible into epochs that had absolutely no relationship to one another. And uh, um, as as the as the doctrine has developed, there have been there have been some of the, some relaxation uh, of that. Uh, because it's been realized that it's not as though God has seven plans for his universe, or eight or ten. He's got one plan for his universe. And there are threads and themes that connect the whole. In fact, we're going to spend some time talking about what is it that ties everything all together. We, we already said tonight, well, it's, it's not salvation only. So, so what is the big theme? What is the thing that ties it all together? Okay, And that's going to be a question that, uh, that it was a question that the early dispensationalists didn't ask and answer a whole lot and now there's been a little bit more of that that's going on in the last uh, several decades. Okay, um, There are themes that go together but there's also discontinuities things that, things that are different. I start here by saying that God's the fact that God is changeless, God is immutable, means there has to be some connection between the dispensations. Uh, he has an unchanging decree. 
Uh, whatever we're going to say about the dispensations, we're not saying that God is stumbling along from plan A to plan B to plan C and failing along the way. God has an inalterable decree that is established from the foundation of the world, and it is, out, it is working out in perfection. Okay. Uh, you might not see all the perfections now, but we can guarantee that the decree of God is such that nothing escapes his notice. There's nothing, there's no, no adjustments that need to be made along the way. It doesn't mean, though, that God has to be static as he, as he works his way through, through history. So I say here, immutability, the changelessness of God, doesn't mean immobility, that God doesn't move. He also has an unchanging character, which I think really needs to inform our ethic as we go from dispensation to dispensation. We're going to talk, we're going to talk a little bit about this when we talk about the law. Okay, so there are, there are laws in the Old Testament, and there's laws in the New Testament, and the laws don't always correspond to one another. Sometimes there's more laws here, sometimes there's more laws here. Uh, and uh, and, and in, well, then we get like to uh, Matthew 5, where, where Jesus says, well, Moses said this, but I say this. And he goes through a sequence, or does like six times. He says, uh, this is what Moses said, I'm going to say something else. Or I'm going to say something more. And so we, we look at that and say, okay, does God's ethic change? And my answer is that God's moral standards do not change. Okay, So it's not as though something that was wrong in the Old Testament is now right in an intrinsic sense. Okay, Nor is it the other way around. Okay, So, for instance, when it says, you know, Moses said, don't kill each other. But I say to you, don't hate each other. Don't imagine that it means, okay, we used to be okay to hate each other, just as long as it didn't come to, come to blows. <laughs> no, no, I think what he's doing here is, is giving an explanation of the way it ought to have been. Yeah, the extreme was detailed here in the Old Testament, don't kill each other. Okay, But, but Christ says, okay, in order so you don't get to that point where you don't kill each other, you can't start hating one another because hating leads to killing. And, and it was just the same thing with adultery. You know, it's not just the act of adultery, but the process that gets you there that is the problem. And so he details these things. And so there's no changes in the, in, in the essential morality of God. But there are changes in the incidental outworking of what that looks like sometimes. Okay? And uh, we uh, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that next week. We're going to we're going to spend a little time parsing here. What do we do with the Old Testament law? Um, what parts do we keep? What parts do we discard? Do we keep the whole thing? Do we discard the whole thing? What what, what do we do with the law? That's going to be a big question for next week. Uh, but uh, for now, I'm going to say this: that God's moral standards do not change because. He is unchanging in his character. That's the mutability of God. His decree and his character do not change. But there is progress in Revelation that adds, I say here, some cohesion to the Bible. There's progressive revelation. God does not give all the information to us at once. Uh, Adam only had a little bit of information. Now, he may have had more than we know because... God had conversations with them that we're not privy to. Uh, we can really only go by what we have 
recorded for us in the scripture. Well, I think we can be con we can confidently say he didn't have as much information as we do. Okay. Because that information was given to him over time. You know, uh, beginning of Hebrews says that. God spoke in various times and epochs and ways and portions. Now has completed his revelation by sending us his son. Okay, so we've got more information. Uh, so there is change within the uh, outworking of God program that includes new data, new information as God willed to give it and as God prepared us to receive it. And so this concept of progressive revelation does provide something of a continuity and a discontinuity as we go. So what, what's first? Discontinuity. Covenant theology, I say, insists that the church is spiritual Israel, um, and so it's all the same. The church is Israel. Israel is the church. Um, but they can't really explain why so many laws changed. Okay? Why is it that it, we had to obey the Sabbath in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament it says, eh, let every man be convinced in his own mind. But what, 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 what changed if there's absolute continuity between Israel and the church? Well, I think there isn't. Okay, and there's, so there's discontinuities in, in the progress of Revelation. Why does pork suddenly become acceptable in Acts 10 when it was not acceptable prior to that? Well, again, dispensationalism gives some good explanations for it, for that covenant theology doesn't. Covenant theology goes to extraordinary lengths to try to, to parse between certain kinds of laws and, and such, but... Uh, as we're going to see, I think the dispensational explanation of what's going on is actually going to be much more compelling and satisfying as we work through it. Okay? Uh, dispensationalism, I say, has a simple airtight solution. The church isn't Israel and isn't bound by her laws. And if I can make a comparison here, um, let me ask you, are you bound by the laws of Canada? Well, if you're in Canada, you are, okay. But here, no, I'm not. Is there overlap between American laws and Canadian laws? Considerable, okay. I mean, I mean, it's not exact, and that's, which is why they have to search through your trunk to see if there's alcohol there because it's you know three years different between when you can get the alcohol up. But but for the most part, the laws are have a lot of similarities across the board. So it's not as though I cross the bridge and say, "Woohoo, I can start killing." I can start killing folks because I'm, I'm no longer... But, yeah, okay, no, you're not bound by American law here, but you're now bound by Canadian law, and so you dare not kill. I think what we effectively have is the same thing when we're talking about Israel and the church. Okay, so Israel has a set of laws, a very complex set of laws. Okay, we're no longer Israel. We're the church. Woohoo! we're free from the law. Okay, yeah, but we still have laws. <laughs> there, it's a different set of laws. It's a different law code. We're in Canada now, rather than the United States, but and there's a lot of overlap, but you're technically not under the laws of Israel. You're under a new law code, sometimes called the law of Christ, or, uh, uh, um, or the perfect law in, in, in the book of James. So, so that, that, that's one of the big things we're going to have to talk about next time. But there's also continuity as well. The fact that there's new revelation is, and that is progressive suggests that there are intersecting and unifying themes that connect all the dispensations together. And they're not sealed units. They're interconnected. Okay? Um, which means, for instance, that when God gives a promise way back in Genesis 12, 
and it's not yet fulfilled, even though we go through several dispensations until we get there, it's got to be fulfilled. Why? Because Romans 11 9.29 says, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So if God has made a promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, and it hasn't been fulfilled yet, it will be fulfilled uh, for Adam, for Abraham's descendants. Okay. Also means that there are common transcendent moral attributes as well, because uh, there is a single immutably righteous standard of God that is binding in all dispensations. The question that we're going to have to come up to with next time when we come together is this. How do we know which ones are transcendent laws, as we look through the Old Testament, and which ones we can discard? They're profitable for us, perhaps, but they're not applicable to us. I mean, all Scripture is profitable, but not all of Scripture is directly applicable. Okay? And, so, and so what kind of grid can we put together to say... Okay, what do I do with those laws in the Old Testament? You know, you're, again, you're reading, you're, you're reading through Leviticus right now, or Numbers, or Deuteronomy. If you're, and, and this is where everybody stops. Because we're, we're scratching our heads and says, does, what does this have to do with me? Okay. Well, hopefully, come back next week, we can see if we can't parse out some of those things uh, so you're able to uh, get a little better, better, better handle on, on what you're supposed to do with that data. Yeah. Uh, just kind of a summary question. Like, how would we respond to, to someone who objected to dispensationalism because they felt like maybe the way it had been explained to them, all these dispensations were triggered by human failure? And, and they just felt like, well, you, all, you just keep saying each dispensation comes about because humans, you know, fell down on the job and God had to do something else. Like, how would we, we respond to that in, in a way that makes dispensationalism more balanced, more attractive? I guess my response is to say that that's not how it happened historically. Um, you know, it, 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 there are there are there are changes in the dispensations, and God is the one who sort of instigates them, and uh, for His own purpose. He doesn't always explain His purposes, which He did sometimes. Uh, but there's there's I don't think there's anything in the sequence that says a that failure has to be a part of it. Now. Failure occurs all the way through the uh, through, through the uh, uh, the Bible, but it's not because the dispensations failed; it's because people are depraved. So I, I don't think it's it's the system that's failing here; it's the people that fail uniformly all the way through. Um, and uh, and quite frankly, the last one's going to be very successful. Not completely, and there's a rebellion at the end, uh, but uh, it is going to be somewhat successful. So so. It, there does seem to be a progress, a succession here, where we get more and better, and things, and, and as, as we work our way through, uh, the excitement grows. The anticipation builds as you move towards the end. And, and I think that's one thing that dispensationalism has done well. I, I know some, sometimes there's been something of a popular frenzy attached to, you know, the, the left behind kind of things. But, there, but I think one thing that dispensationalism has done well is really cause people to anticipate the end uh, rather than live in the now. And uh, hopefully that's something that, that you come away with uh, after, after we study it. That we're going somewhere. We're, we're headed somewhere. There's progress. It's not just a series of failures. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a movement towards ultimate success within, within history.
I don't know if that answers your question. Thank you. Other thoughts? Questions? Okay. We'll see you next week, and we'll uh, uh, see if we can't uh, figure out the law. <laughs>